I preach from down here because it just feels really separate up here. So hope you don't mind if I'm a little closer this morning. I really enjoyed the chance we had to, to pray for and to commission all the, the teachers and the students here. Uh, with three of our kids in school, I'm very grateful for good teachers and, uh, and very aware of the powerful influence that they have. And as I think back on my own life, I'm, I'm very grateful as well for the good teachers that I had, the folks who invested in me and, and weren't simply there to pass along information, but really to, to grow me as a person. Um, and I think some of the best teachers that I had and that I think we've all had are the ones who grow our curiosity, and grow our awe and our wonder at the world that God has made. And uh, I, um, <laughs> whenever I say this, summer makes fun of me, but I, I entered college as a physics major. I declared to be physics major before I'd even been to college. Um, but because of a, the physics teacher that I had in high school who really opened up for me um, kind of the awe and the wonder and the curiosity at the way that the world worked. I didn't last very long as a physics major in college, and summer as an engineering major took way more physics than I did. But um, I, that, that awe and that curiosity was, uh, uh, was woken up in me in a, in a wonderful way in that class and really moved me um, to worship God for how he had made the world. And then in college, I got to know one of my physics professors, uh, and long after I had left the program, <laughs> we remained friends, and he actually... Uh, was a, a significant influence on me in terms of my own understanding of what it was to lead worship. This was a guy who um, could, like, if it had strings, he could learn the instrument over the summer in between, you know, graduation and when school started the next year. He was just, his, his uh, physics doctoral thesis was on the acoustics of timpani drums. So, uh, and he, he was, uh, he had jammed with the Charlie Daniels band and uh, he was amazing. But he taught me not only a lot about guitar, but about what it, what it meant to lead worship. Um, because part of how he was wired was as someone uh, who just loved passing on knowledge and raising other people up, um, though this had nothing to do with his job as a physics prof. He just he, he loved uh, investing in people. And I was the, the beneficiary of that. And one of the great uh, tools, I think, that a good teacher has at their disposal is a good question. Right? A good question carries a lot of weight. And that's what I love about uh, this series that we're going through. We're working our way through the New City Catechism. Uh, and we're on the second week. And this uh, follows the pattern that a lot of other catechisms over the years have, uh, the, the pattern that they have developed, which is a question and answer. And through a series of questions and answers, we developed a full-orbed picture of, of what the gospel is, of what the good news is. Um, and our belief, our hope, is that these questions will drive us back to Scripture, which will then drive us to Jesus. That's kind of the progression that I hope happens as we ask and answer these questions, that these questions will sit with us. They're good questions. They're big questions. That they'll drive us back to Scripture, and that in the Scriptures we'll find ourselves pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was an excellent question asker. He asked a lot of questions. By some estimates, he asked about, there's 300 questions that Jesus asked uh, that are recorded in the Gospels. Um, And some of them are doozies, right? Do you want to be made well? Who do you say that I am? Right? Which, Which of these men was the true neighbor to this injured man? These are not questions that are easily and quickly answered, right? These are questions that you have to sit with. 
And as you sit with them, I think uh, the, the answers grow over time, right? The longer you sit with the question of who do you say that I am? Um, and we, we kind of grow into the answers over time. So as we, as we make our way through the questions and the answers here and, and the, the biblical texts that accompany them, there's a danger. The, the danger is that we will ask a question and answer it and we'll think that we've got it, right? We asked the question, we, we got the answer right, we're, we're set, let's move on to the next one. And so my, my hope, I think, is that we can uh, set with these questions and let them work on us. That we don't move so quickly to the answer that we just think we've got it all figured out, but that we can really settle in with these questions and let them work on us. Well, last week, Randy uh, kicked off this series, and he started where the Heidelberg Catechism, that's hundreds of years old, starts. And this, this New City Catechism, it really is just a, a distillation um, uh, and a compilation of these other ancient catechisms that the church has used for hundreds of years. So Randy started with uh, Heidelberg Q&A 1. What is our only hope and comfort in life and in death? That's a question we could spend a lifetime sitting with, right? Growing into that answer. What is our only hope, our only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that was given is that our only hope and comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but are bought, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to God and to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I... I really believe that the, most of the rest of this catechism is actually just kind of fleshing out that answer, helping us understand what the implications of that answer are. But this week we're stopping. We're saying, okay, if our hope and our comfort is that I don't belong to myself, but I belong to God, what do we mean when we say God? What is God? That's the question this week. And it's an interesting question because I don't think it's the one that I would have come up with. I would have asked something more like, who is God? But the fact that it's phrased, what is God, is actually instructive to us. It, it tells us something. It tells us that God uh, is not just a bigger version of ourselves. God is something uh, completely other, completely separate. The, the Bible uses the word holy, not to necessarily mean pious and upright, but to mean completely other. That when we are talking about God, we are not talking about the white man with the big beard, um, we are not talking about a bigger, more powerful version of ourselves, but we are talking about a being completely other than us. So, uh, I want to ask and have us all answer this question. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, Wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. If you are like me, you read that list of words, and about halfway through, you're like, I'm not sure what I'm saying. <laughs> these are big words, right? Not just long words, but these are massive concepts that we're talking about. And it's just this list of them. And I think that actually is part of the point, right? That as we, as we reflect on the nature of God, we quickly run into the limits of our language, right? We run into the limits of our ability to 
accurately think of a God who's infinite in all of these qualities. So poetry can help us. Poetry in the form of uh, Psalm 86. In the middle of Psalm 86, David, the psalmist, writes this. Among the gods, there is none like you. Lord, no deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. You, Lord, are a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Lord, as we ask this question, what are you? Who are you? And as we look at your scripture, would you open our minds and our hearts that we would do more than just mentally assent to the right answer, but that we would be changed by the power of your spirit, that we would live lives that more and more reflect who you truly are. Help us, Lord. Amen. So to to continue to play with this question and answer theme, uh, David, in the middle of this psalm, answers a question, or what he gives here begs a question. And it's a question that Scripture asks on numerous occasions, right? From Exodus 15, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? From Psalm 77, What God is as great as our God? And from Isaiah 46, this is the Lord's voice himself. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? To all of these questions, the psalm answers nothing. Nothing can be compared to God. He is completely outside of any category that we have for what we've experienced in this life. Right? God is the creator Everything else is created. He's the reference point. The the answer that we read earlier uh, spoke of God as creator and sustainer. And I think those two things held together uh, encompass a lot of what we're trying to get at when we ask that question, what is God? He creates, but he also sustains. He, He actively governs what he has made. He is not... A God who has made everything and then steps back and just kind of lets it go. But is one that is intimately and actively involved in his creation. Again, this is is from the longer answer of this first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. When we're answering answering that question of what is our, our hope and comfort, part of it is that God watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. This is part of what it means for God to be sustaining and working intimately within his creation. He's exercising his will in this world. That part of that answer, right, he can watch over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head. I always, that's a funny one for me to lead. I actually feel like... Only bald people should be able to lead that question and answer because we understand what it is to be in God's will. You'll all get there someday. No, but this, uh, 
this sense that God, uh, God is actively involved, exercising his will in the creation that he has made, uh, is also challenging to believe because we also see the effects of sin in this world. And, and we hold these two things together and we're like, God active at work in his world, the brokenness and the sinfulness that we see. And this is a tension that we live in, short of this side of Jesus coming back and making all things new. Um, and, and part of the tension we live in right now is that it's hard for us to see God at work in the world. There are obstacles to that. Um, some of them are out there and some of them are in here, these obstacles. But it is, it is hard often for us to see and really experience God as the sustainer of all things. Um, I think it's easier for many of us, and I'll speak for myself here, I think it's easier for me to conceive of God as the creator of everything, the one who's made everything and set everything in motion. Um, At times, it's more challenging for me to really believe and see and experience God as the sustainer of everything. God is one who is intimately involved. Um, I'm grateful for the glimpses that I have of it. Right? Those, are, those are grace to us, the glimpses that we get. But uh, how is it then that we can develop eyes and ears to see God, both as, as creator but also as sustainer? To see God accurately, right? That's what this is all about. Um, we have a tendency to, to make God in our own image, as I, I said earlier, that we, we tend to think of God as kind of like us, right? Uh, just a little bigger, a little stronger, Um, But how do we develop eyes and ears to see and experience God as God really is? I have a few thoughts of practical ways uh, that we can put ourselves in a position where God can reveal himself as he really is. Um, And it it sort of fell into two categories. I don't know if this is on the slide here, Ed. Yeah. So we need to develop our vocabulary and we need to engage our senses. So you can leave that up for just a little bit here. So one of the words matter. Words, uh, even though we sometimes reach the limits of our language, words matter. They're the kind of the best thing that we have to, um, to try to represent reality. Uh, and I know that everyone says we live in a post-truth age, but the reality is we still use words to communicate, and when we use them, we're referring to reality, <laughs> to things. Um, and so we want to develop a vocabulary. We need to develop a vocabulary about God that is accurate, that reflects who he really is. And one way we do that is simply by reading the scriptures, front to back, Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. Uh, we have a tendency, I think, to, to kind of pick and choose aspects of God that we like or that we most resonate with. Um, but we need the full counsel of the Bible to give us an accurate view and to give us an accurate vocabulary. Right? Words that we might not normally use. Maybe we're very inclined towards God's love and his compassion. Um, and then we encounter words like holiness and justice. And those are not opposite things, but God gives definition and embodies all of these perfectly. So we have to pay attention to that as we read scripture. So that's developing a vocabulary about God. But we also need to develop a vocabulary to God in our our relationship to God. And that comes through prayer. Um, 
If you were to examine, I'm going to speak for myself again, because I'm sure all of you have robust, beautiful prayer lives that are far more spiritually uh, robust than mine. But when I, if you, were to, if you were to draw a picture of God based on the kinds of prayers that I pray, my fear uh, is that you would draw a picture of a divine vending machine who hands out things that I think I need um, if I can just get the right amount of change in and hit the right button. That's probably more what my prayer life, the words of my prayers reflect if I just am kind of on my own praying. So what's helpful for me is praying the Psalms taking the psalms that we find in Scripture and actually turning them into prayers that I pray, embodying the language there, and praying prayers that other people have written. I would start with the psalms, but I would say uh, even, even the prayer that we prayed earlier this morning was not one that I had written. Someone else had written it. And they use language that's not native to me, and that's good for me. That stretches me. That, that draws me into experiencing the truth of who God is in a, in a deeper way and... Um, stretches my vocabulary. The third way that I would say our vocabulary gets stretched in really good ways is by telling and listening to stories. Stories from each other. Stories of the ways that God is at work in our lives. And then we start to have ears to hear and eyes to see ways that he's at work in our own lives. Ways that he's at work around us. This is, this is one of my greatest hopes for our community groups, that they become places where we get to share these stories of, of where we're seeing God at work in the world, where we're seeing him show up uh, in our own work, right? Where we're seeing him uh, healing a relationship with a coworker, or where we're seeing him form us as parents, growing us uh, in patience, because that seems to be the biggest area where I need growth as a parent. But we need places where we can tell and hear those stories and share those stories. And as we do that, I think we're going we're gonna to grow in our understanding of, uh, of how God is at work in the world. The Israelites, when they were establishing the, uh, the, the feast of the Passover, part of what happens in the Passover is there's these rituals that the Israelites will go through, and they are designed to help the kids ask questions. They're they, they, they get out the, the bread and it, there's no yeast in it. Well, that's odd. Why would we make bread like that? What's, mom, dad, what's going on with this? The kids ask questions. What, what tell us the story, like, why are we doing this? What, what is God like? That's, it's, all these questions ultimately lead to that kind of a question. What is God like? And the answer, the way that the parents would respond to that question is by telling a story, right? Well, generations ago, we were enslaved in Egypt. And we're going to tell you what God did. We're going to tell you how God rescued us, how he brought us out of slavery into the desert and ultimately into the promised land. So that's one way that we develop this vocabulary is by telling stories of what God has done and what he is doing in our lives. The second way, engaging our senses. As I mentioned earlier, uh, sometimes we reach the limits of our language. And I think it's at those points where engaging the other senses that God has given us help us encounter and see him at work in the world. 
nature, getting out in nature, getting out in creation, which many of you do regularly, and I'm sure that's where some people who are normally here and aren't today are right now, (laughs) are out there contemplating God's works, experiencing the majesty of the mountains, the water, a park, a forest, and taking it uh, not just as a break or an escape, but taking it as something that can grow in us a, uh, an experience and an appreciation for some of these infinite qualities that God has. John Calvin, when commenting on this passage, says this, that the contemplation of God's glory in his works is the true way of acquiring genuine godliness. By taking the time to contemplate the glo- God's glory in his works, in nature, in our own lives, taking time to reflect on that. That leads to godliness. And I would also say this. This is why we need great art. This is why we need music and paintings and architecture and film. These things can help grow our appreciation and our sense of these infinite characteristics that God has uh, when words fail. Um, I am inclined towards music. I love music. And I feel like though it, there have been uh, concerts that I've had or, or just moments in life where certain songs right, have really uh, ministered to me, really uh, been helpful for me in ways that words just couldn't. Uh, I wish sometimes that we had a retractable roof here in the theater and that we could worship uh, with a vaulted ceiling. And, and um, we have what we have, and, it's, and we're very grateful for it. But uh, these are ways, I think, ways to develop our vocabulary, ways to engage our senses, all of which grow our ability to answer that question. What is God? What is God like? You could view all of this sermon that I've just given uh, as an introduction to actually reading the psalm. So I'm going to pray Psalm 86. And I want you to listen. Listen to the language. Listen to the language of God's holiness, his transcendence. But also listen to the language of the way that he is at work in the world and in the life of David, the psalm writer. The intimacy. All right, Psalm 86. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good abounding in love to all who call on you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. 
Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me. Have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This table is another way that we answer that question, what is God? We can point to the story that these elements tell us of Christ's great love and sacrifice for us, of the forgiving work that God has done on our behalf by sending his son to die and to conquer sin and death. This is, this is the story that we tell every week when we come to this table. It's a story that helps us answer that question. What is God? Who, who is God? What is God like? God is like this. God is like Christ. Who on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death till he comes again. This is a story that, we, that, that shapes us as we do this week after week, as we come and encounter a God who has made the world but who also sustains the world by his own body and blood, who sustains us. So come and and receive forgiveness, receive sustenance as we eat this bread and drink this cup. These are God's gifts for God's people. This isn't sanctuary's table. It's not the CRC's table. It's Jesus' table. And all who put their trust in him are welcome to this feast. Jeremy, would you come and help me serve? This is gluten-free bread, so all are welcome.